1: So what is this whole episode about? Is it are, do I get to go in the same podcast episode as Michelle Akers? Are you fucking serious? Yeah. Wow, that's I don't know. I think you might need to pick someone else for that she one. Decides,
2: Michelle Akers soaring and
1: scoring. Michelle Akers, her
2: strength in the air continues
1: to be. Michelle yeah. Akers was like the uh, machine of that team, and she's just she was just like phenomenal.
3: That was Beck Smith. We'll meet Bex later. But first, let's meet Michelle.
1: My name is Michelle
4: Akers, and I played for the US team, well, on the first team ever, in 1985 until uh, I retired in 2000. I was part of three World Cups and won two. And won olympics the first olympics everyone women's football and soccer was involved um, as a, an official sport and fifa player of the century with pele that was super cool i'm relevant because i did that
3: <laughs> <laughs> i'm owen blackhurst and you're listening to giant football stories that matter told by the people who were there a spotify original in association with monday al heightened media visibility and double the prize money make the 2019 Women's World Cup the biggest and most important to date. Yet despite a global rise in participation and professionalism, parity remains a long way off. It would be ridiculous to try and distill the history of the women's game into one episode. So here's what we did instead. We decided to speak to one player from each of the previous seven World Cups to chart the tournament's progression. But as we traveled across Europe and the USA, the story changed. This is a story of defiance, childbirth, despair, superhuman effort and success without support. The stories of seven individuals that starkly illuminate the friction that exists between being both a woman and a footballer. This is The Magnificent Seven. We've driven to rural Atlanta to see Michelle Akers at her rescue horse farm. It's beautiful.
4: I got buckets to
3: sit on. We're sitting on buckets outside the barn as three rescue dogs play with a ball. Michelle, wearing a pair of massive work boots, stands up, drops the ball and nails it on the half volley. The dogs run off in chase. The only sound
4: is going to be her panting. Well, and maybe a rooster crowing. I was um, a kid who just... I was totally active and, you know, always outside playing sports. Or usually the only girl in a crowd of neighbourhood boys. And so I went and practised with my brother's team, who was two years younger than me, and, you know, killed everyone.
3: While Seb is running around keeping the hounds and the squeaky ball away from the mic, I asked Michelle when she realised that she was really good at football.
4: Oh, yeah, that's hilarious and how, how dumb I was. I had no idea until... Like my freshman year in college, I kept getting all this media because I just never took the time to look uh, or compare myself or think about it, right? Even though my goal was I wanted to be the best player, soccer player in the world. How? We had no, I didn't know what a World Cup was. We didn't have Olympics. There's nothing to say I had any future in it, but I wanted that. So um, in college, in my second year there, the, I seeing all that I was like oh my god I think I think I am I must be really good and my teammates were like
3: duh Michelle like in 1985 Michelle scored the first goal in the history of the U.S. women's national team it was in a game against Italy she doesn't remember it I'll tell you what she does remember though she remembers the exact moment she fell in love with international sport the exact moment she realized what a national team meant
4: I didn't get it until we got our asses kicked in the first game. All the stuff that goes on in the game, kind of outside of the boundary of the rules, but within the rules, right? They were just thrashing, spitting on us and stomping on us and grabbing our crotch and just horrible, ruthless, right? And then once I realized, oh my God, this is all within the game, I loved it. So I I thought it was fantastic. So it just fed into how I love to play anyway.
3: Then Anson Dorrance took over as US coach and told her he was putting her up front. To adjust, she arranged practices with the men's college team to cope with being double marked. She spent time with Paul Mariner and Jeff Hurst learning the dark arts of forward play.
4: This ability to win games, just taking the game over, I had to learn it, so I went to Sweden and um, played for this division two team, two FF, and had to win games for them. So that's where I learned, was I able to, you know, do
3: this? Because of reticence from some chinless wonders in Switzerland, the 1991 tournament was not called the Women's World Cup. It was called the first FIFA World Championship for women's football for the M&M's Cup. Nonsense. And the commercial sponsor is really ironic when you consider that there was no prize money on offer for the players. Despite this madness and the fact they had to wear hand-me-down men's kits, Michelle was happy to be in China and sure of the outcome.
4: Oh, we were going to win. I was totally confident. It was surreal, and at the same time, it was like I was in a kid in a candy store because every game, it was something huge was on the line. And I, so I, I just loved that. I loved it.
2: Yeah. The Karen Jennings, She has space. She has a shot. Jennings, upper 90, what a goal! Karen Jennings with
3: a The US forward line of Michelle, April Heinrichs and Karen Jennings was known as the triple-edged sword. And they carved the opposition to pieces in the run-up to the final. Then they had to face a fantastic Norway side in a match that would kick off a decade-long rivalry. goal the
4: tournament.
3: After 20 minutes, Michelle scored the first with a monster of a header. Norway equalised nine minutes later. The second half needed a hero.
4: We were walking out, and Tony DiChio puts his arm around me and said, "Mish, if we're going to win, you're going to have to do it."
3: now In the 78th minute, a long ball is pumped forward towards Michelle. The two Norwegian defenders appear to be favourites to win it.
4: That defender should have just had it and cleared it, and but I was chasing her. I chased the ball down, and so it made her nervous, and she didn't attack it or go through it or make the right decision. So I got to kind of run into her a little bit. And then I had a 1v1 with the keeper, and I touched it to the left, and it went too far to the left. The, The angle of the net is so small, so I was like, okay, I need to cut it back. And then I just passed it in.
3: She tells it so matter-of-fact, like it was nothing. they just won the first Women's World Cup. But in some ways, it was nothing. They didn't get anything for winning it. And when the team arrived home, they were greeted by a solitary media representative. In 1993, after years of putting her post-match tiredness down to the amount she pushed herself, Michelle was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. Most people would have stopped there and then. The illness robbed her of her ability to run all day. But not Michelle. Instead she decided to find ways to reinvent herself and keep on playing.
4: I was tough as shit. That's I was tough as shit and I wanted I wanted to be on that team and I wanted to win. That was one thing. I, we did um, IVs after um, training, after games at halftime um, because my blood pressure would drop. I wouldn't have enough blood to my brain, basically. I drank coffee. Throughout the game, because so, the caffeine um, vasoconstricts and push, again pushes the, the, my blood back up to my brain so I could have some blood pressure and actually be able to think without fainting.
3: Michelle managed to make it to the 1995 World Cup. She played two games, including the semi-final loss to eventual winners Norway. The US team were incensed by the Norwegian celebrations and she used this rivalry as fuel to keep going, starting with the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta the first time women's football had been included.
4: I loved that we hated them, it was so fun. They were good, and they were annoying, and like, so, God, you just hated them. But it was so great to play against them in training. Like, I remember running with uh, Christine Lilly and and Carla Overbeck with, you know, those fucking viking bitches, you know, like... And they would, they would be yelling that. And so that, that Olympics was about, I guess, our, our resolution to be the best in the world and how we were gonna do this and how we were gonna kill Norway while we did it and everyone.
3: The US won the tournament, with Michelle now dominating games from a holding midfield role. She'd reinvented herself. She played all but 14 minutes of the five games and she scored one goal, an equalizing 76th minute penalty against Norway in the semi final. The 1999 tournament in America was massive. We'll talk about it later. She remembers the collective joy, but mostly she remembers that the reported progression in the women's game was mostly superficial.
4: It was the same old thing. In the final, we had to warm up on the cement in the tunnel, World Cup final, and we're doing that. We had given our lives to this, and this is what we loved, and um, and yet the, it's sort of like, yeah, you know, you're kind of second-class citizens still. We had to go on strike before, I think, in 96 Olympics, and just, I mean, to get shit anyway. We, it wasn't even like we were on strike for a million dollars. It wasn't even that, we just, uh, can we, you know, have some childcare? Can we, you know, can you pay our rent? Can, you know, like, we just wanted basics so we could train. Um, and and to do that, we had to take a huge risk all the time.
3: We've got to ask her, does she regret that risk?
4: I know, that's, it's funny because I've been thinking about that. I love that the fact that how I played and what I did impacts people. It has nothing to do with winning or losing or playing soccer. It, It has everything to do with being who you are and following your path at all costs.
3: There's a great quote from Michelle. It's in a piece in the New York Times and was published after she retired in 2001. Everyone wonders if they have what it takes when the rubber meets the road. When she was the greatest, did she know she was the greatest? Yeah,
4: I did. Yeah, absolutely. It was just for me because my whole goal was to reach my potential. Like that was the exciting part. Like, what do I, what can I do? Like, how good can I be? And can I be the best player in the world? And then when I was sick or injured so badly for so long, um, can I be the best player in the world, but be a different player now? Have a different role. Can I still be the best player in the world, but at the same time, it's just all, it's only about my potential and my journey.
3: Michelle Akers scored 107 goals for the US, won two World Cups and Olympics, and inspired more than one generation. But you cannot quantify Michelle Akers in numbers. Think of how many people want to be the greatest. Think of how many actually manage it. Who manages to do it twice? It might sound like a cliche, but there really is only one Michelle Akers.
5: I remember I read uh, Michelle Aker, She had, she wrote a book, and then it was like we had stolen their gold. That, so that's a good feeling. <laughs> and
3: they finish with a flurry here. Almost played Risa in. They've won it. The first European winners of the World Championship of Women's Football are Norway. The tournament's top scorers are confirmed as the tournament's top team. Beaten in the final four years ago, triumphant in the final this time. Let's go meet one of those Vikings. One of those players Michelle loved to hate.
5: Hey, my name is anne Christine Ornes from Norway. I played in the World Cup in 1995 in Sweden and in '99 in US.
3: We're at Alisson FC to meet Anne. She works here as an administrator. Like a lot of players of her generation, she didn't have any female role models but was obsessed with the game. Anne had to play in a boys' team until she was 14. It was only when she left that she realised exactly how good she was.
5: Maybe when I started playing with girls, because then I saw that I was yeah, much better than most of them, because they hadn't played that much as I had. But I never, I never dreamt of playing for the national team.
3: She made her debut against England at Old Trafford in 1990. Anne was in all the camps leading up to the 1991 World Cup, but didn't make it in the final squad for the M&M Super Bowl or whatever it was FIFA called it. She had to follow it from work.
5: I worked as a teacher in that period, and I remember that uh, I think the games was at daytime here in Norway, and the teachers, the other teachers allowed me to sit and watch the games in another classroom to, to follow them.
3: We talked about being able to concentrate on football full-time. You could tell it still hurts
5: because I have always studied or had a work beside the football. My only year as a professional player was in US in two thousand and one, my last season. So it's totally different now for the young girls growing up that they can have a, re- a really dream about playing for Barcelona or Man United. Or that was not—I uh, didn't ever do that because you, you didn't think that could be possible. But I, I played football and I had—I an, have an education and. I worked besides, and it was okay. But of course, I envy those who can be a professional player all the time and just think about playing football.
3: In China, four years earlier, the average attendances were 19,000. But in 1995 in Sweden, that dropped to 4,000. Logistically, the choice of grounds became a nightmare, and travel was difficult for fans. But at least FIFA had the bollocks to call it the World Cup. But still, they meddled. They tried to introduce timeouts in matches. And only three were taken in the entire tournament. Norway only cared about one thing and that was righting the wrongs of 1991.
5: We felt very confident when we went into the tournament and uh, we knew we had a good team and that we we knew that we could win. We didn't have a lot of uh, media writing about us then. I guess always when it was a tournament then both the media and people in Norway would follow us and watch the games and so on but It's, it was not like it is today.
3: Michelle told us how good Norway were. They were stacked with experience. Most of the players would go on to get well over 100 caps. They played free-flowing football, ball on the floor, midfield runners supporting the strikers, and they finished the group stages with 17 goals for and none against. By the time they beat Denmark in the quarters, Anne had scored five goals, including a hat-trick. She's adamant that she barely remembers it. But she can't forget the semi-final against US, nor the rivalry.
5: We played against the US many, many times. And the first years I played for national team, then Sweden was our biggest uh, enemy. But then after some years, it was US. I remember I was really nervous before that game. They had Michel yeah, and Mia Hamm, and Christine Lilly, and all these big names and stars. And I, I remember that goal.
3: We're not supposed to tell you to do this, but we keep doing it anyway. Go and have a look at it now. You can see Michelle at the front post, and you can see Anne lurking in the six yard box in her distinctive headband.
5: I think that's maybe the most important goals that I have ever scored.
3: The pressure release of beating the US saw Norway dominate Germany in the final. They won 2-0 in front of 19,000 people. But when Anne talks about the aftermath, you can see another flash of annoyance.
5: Then it was a lot of uh, attention to us and everyone wanted to be with the team. When, when you win, you, they show up. <laughs> Still, it was a really, really great feeling and a lot of media and they were fighting to get the best picture and just the chaos. But when we flew back to Norway, when we came... Uh, going to land on Fornebu Airport. We had two F-16 planes, one on each side and uh, waving to the pilots.
3: Anne won two of the six individual awards.
5: I had the golden boots and the bronze ball. I think it is in my son's room. And I also have a, a bronze boot from the 99 uh, World Cup. So you have scored ten goals in a World Cup uh, and that feels good. and. Uh, kind of it feels a long long time ago so and people now many they they don't know who i am or what i did
3: Anne was also top scorer at the 1996 olympics she scored 60 goals in 111 games for norway her record at major tournaments would be lionized if she was male she has a part-time role with the norwegian women's under 23s and gets to see a lot of her old teammates and she's really proud of where the game is at today
5: I love it when I read about the crowds in different countries now. Men's club now have a women's team. and So it's it's going in the right direction. There are still some work to be done, but it's getting better and better. I would have loved to be 22 now. And you could dream about getting uh, to get into play in Barcelona, or Man United... But still I was very happy. I, I played for a national team, I got to play in many big tournaments. So I, I am not complaining over what I got to do, but still for young girls now it must uh, be really nice to be a footballer.
3: And as someone who didn't have a female role model as a kid, Anne's making sure that isn't the case wherever possible. And they know who she is.
5: But I'm a coach for young girls, and uh, sometimes they oh, yeah, you're a world champion, and of course, then, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm a good coach because I'm a world champion. (laughs) So you have to listen to what I say.
3: After we say goodbye to Anne, me and Tayo stumble on a massive statue of John Arnaresa out the stadium. I don't know how we didn't see it on the way in. John started his career here. Now, he was a good player and is the country's record caps holder, but John Arnaresa never won a golden boot in a World Cup, did And
2: Your history will be made. The Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. The 1999 Women's World Cup Final. A tournament that started with a record-breaking crowd will end with Culturally,
3: one... Culturally, the 1999 World Cup is viewed as a landmark. 1.2 million people attended the 32 matches. 7.5 million girls or women were playing the game in the US. The tournament was increased to 16 teams. And, finally, all of the match officials were female. Despite the mind-boggling numbers, there was still no prize money on offer. It's time to meet Kate.
0: I am Kate saburo Markgraf. I joined the national team in 1998. I retired in 2010. I have played in three Olympics and three World Cups. I've won a World Cup. Um, I have won two gold medals at the Olympics and gotten a silver. And I've had three babies during my playing career.
3: We were halfway to Milwaukee in late April to meet Kate. The sun was shining, 17 degrees, lovely. Then we started to get emails and text messages from Kate, mates, and airlines. The Midwestern weather was going to turn bad and flights the next day from Chicago were going to be grounded we had to turn back.
0: I was laughing because I was like, welcome to spring in Wisconsin and Chicago. We
3: eventually caught up with Kate a week later. Her sat in a car park in Milwaukee, us in a studio in Brooklyn. In 1995, while starring for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, Kate got a call up to train with the US team. Best we let her explain what happened next.
0: I had always wanted to be on the national team. It was always my dream, but I passed out the fitness test. And with the national team, they built their whole identity around fitness first and mentality and physicality. And if you can't run fitness, you're never going to make that team. I didn't tell anyone I had had strep and I was on medication because I didn't want to ruin my opportunity. But by not disclosing that, I did ruin my opportunity. And for the rest of the week, I had to stay at that camp. And I was so miserable because those women, those people I looked up to would not talk to me. They were so mean to me because they thought I came into camp and disrespected them because they thought I came in unfit.
3: By the time 1999 rolls around, Kate's a regular. But for her and her teammates, they didn't just want to win to avenge 1995. It was much, much bigger than that.
0: They knew that we needed to play good soccer, be the best team, not only because we wanted to win a World Cup, but because we were trying to make a statement that women's sports, in particular women's soccer, Is worth it is worth the investment women being athletes is worth it Uh, we are the byproduct of title nine right that legislation that demands equal support for women's and men's athletics based on enrollment in college and in high school etc uh for males and females so to have that equality, and those women knew that this was to showcase the end product at that point for title nine we pushed ourselves because we didn't want to get
2: embarrassed.
3: The 1999 FIFA Women's World Cup... Imagine going from playing in front of next to nobody to walking out in Giant Stadium in New York. Inside
2: New York City, there will be the largest crowd to ever watch, a women's soccer game, more than 78,000 on hand for the opening... Oh, match. dear God, yes, this is really the World Cup, and... You come
0: out and it was almost just like you walk through this invisible barrier and then you hear everybody and at that moment i swear to god i blacked out i blacked out for a good 15 minutes of that game like i started hitting one
2: long ball to mia diagonal vertical ball cutting into the area controls with the right shoots with the left what a way to pop the cork of the women's world cup the first goal of the tournament and I, and it ended up going to her and she scored a
0: goal and like long vertical ball and i was like, okay now i'm awake then
3: the US never played in front of less than 50,000 people. The media went bananas. Reporters were hanging around hotel lobbies with constant interview requests. They weren't used to it. It
0: was insane. Like it got bigger and bigger and it kept growing to the point where you're like, "What is going on?" like and not to detract from like what we were doing, but it's like, "Are you guys serious right now? You guys have you guys have ignored us our entire lives and now you're coming to talk to us?" But We knew we
2: had to embrace it and we knew we had to be role models. The United States eager to win their second Women's World Cup. Remember, they won the first back in 1991 and to win it on their home soil. The United States able to...
3: The final against China still holds the attendance record for a women's sporting event. 90,000 packed into the Rose Bowl in Pasadena in the middle of summer. The TV audience topped out at 40 million. Kate still can't believe they warmed up on concrete, disgusted by it but they had a game to play.
0: It is hot. It is so hot and stifling. The air is not moving. And so, and then you get the flybys by the Jets and you're like, oh, dear God, here we go. Rest. The
2: journey
3: has come down to this, an historic venue where history... The game was brutal. 120 minutes of dogged play and searing heat. It went to penalties. Kate was down as the 10th taker.
2: 12 yards from Landy testing the shot.
3: And when Brandy Chastain scored the winner, she reckoned she was just as glad that she didn't have to take one.
2: Just,
0: all I know is I'm sprinting as fast as I can to tackle her, screaming at the top of my lungs. And I'm somehow running with both my arms up in the air, jumping up and down. And one of the happiest moments I've ever had in my life, besides childbirth, I have to say, when you used to meet your kids for the first time, that, that moment of pure elation that you're like, we did it.
3: Over the next seven years, Kate played professionally for the Boston Breakers in two Olympics and another World Cup. Then, in 2006, she gave birth to her first child.
0: So, my first pregnancy was impossibly hard to come back from because I ran four days after giving birth. Like, I was like, I got to get training again, I got to go. And I hurt myself so badly from that stupid mentality the first few weeks after giving birth that I put myself in such a hole physically. I really struggled as a mother for about two years. I definitely had postpartum. I lost a ton of weight.
3: A year after giving birth, Kate went to the 2007 World Cup and followed that up a year later by winning her second Olympics in Beijing. You won't believe what happened next.
0: So I got pregnant with twins right after the Olympics and I actually got cut um, four weeks after I gave birth to the twins um, because they never thought I could come back.
3: Just let that sink in for a minute. Are you still angry? Kate is. To her immense credit, she used that anger to help other people to make sure it didn't happen again.
0: I didn't file a pregnancy lawsuit, a discrimi- pregnancy discrimination lawsuit. I just said, listen, this is illegal what you guys did. I was pregnant and I'm still coming back. I don't want to come back to the national team, but you can't do this and I want to make sure it doesn't happen to anybody else. So a, there was a rule and now it's always in the contract from that point forward in 2009. It's, it was jokingly called the Mark Graff rule from our lawyer, but there's a certain extended time period that mothers coming back to play get enough time to come back because of me. So I'm happy that that was my legacy that no one else has to go through that. What I went through because just giving birth to twins your hormones are crazy. And then to get cut from a team that you're on for 10 years, you're kind of like, what I think I, that's my biggest thing that I'm proud of. But I was like, this can never happen to anyone again. Cause it devastated me horribly. Right. And so I didn't want anyone else to go through that. No mother should have to go through that, especially after giving birth.
3: The US kept asking Kate to come back. She was stuck on 198 caps, and she continued to refuse. In the end, and only for herself, Kate went back and played three more games to get past the 200 barrier. Then they offered her a contract. She said no, and then she retired. In April 2001, the Women's United Soccer Association launched. It was the first fully professional women's league in which all players were paid. Yet due to financial difficulties, the league suspended operations on the 15th of September 2003 at the end of its third season. Five days later, the 2003 Women's World Cup kicked off in the US.
1: Renata Lingua was one of the best players in the world. Like, pff, incredible.
3: That's Bex again. And we promise we'll meet her soon but on her advice we hopped on a plane to frankfurt
6: my name is uh, renate lingua i uh, was a former national player for the women's uh, national team of germany i was lucky to win the women's world cup two times Uh, now i'm working for the german soccer association as a team manager for the women's under 16 team
3: renate was a prodigy a street footballer who played with the boys and she was so good that they signed her up.
6: So when I was five or six, I started at this very small club and then I changed one one year later to a bigger club, which is a, a men's Bundesliga club, This is Karlsruher SC.
3: In the end, her brother's friends used to tease him because she was better than him. She was better than all of them. And in 1990, age 16, Renate signed for a team in the newly launched women's Bundesliga.
6: So it was not that easy to handle um, the school and also my career as a Bundesliga player, but I needed to to grow, I needed to to handle myself.
3: After a few years of being around the national team, Renate made the squad for the 1999 World Cup. Have a look at her long-range left-footed strike against Mexico in the group games. Blimey. She then came on in the quarterfinal loss against the USA.
6: In my opinion, I played just five minutes. In these five minutes afterwards, I was like, okay, I played the whole match because it was was so fast. Yeah, it was a tough game.
3: The pace of the game, noise of the crowd, and technical level on the pitch left Renate wanting more. Tina Toyner, not that one, had taken over as coach in 1998. She was the first woman to get the highest qualification of coaching available in Germany, and she had a massive effect on Renate's career.
6: Once she said to me, um, you're no more just a little girl who can play against everyone and wins the one we have won. There must be more. You must change your your game when you want to be a big soccer player. And uh, so you must also fight. Some people say this, not me, that I was a little diva. Uh, when i was younger so the other ran for me so i was for about half in half a year she didn't invite me to the national team so and that was a point um for me and it was just between 1999 and uh, 2000.
3: tina was ahead of her time in the women's game you could say she was simply the best sorry we're very sorry
6: she she worked on every detail um we we saw a lot of videos which is now Totally normal, but in our time, I, th- I don't think there were so many coaches who worked a lot with, um, with uh, video analysis. And uh, we, we saw, I don't know, a thousand times the French men's team uh, who were very successful at this time. She showed us how to act on the field.
3: Heading into the World Cup, Tina played another ace. She took the legendary Marin Minor out of retirement. Maynard had been the MVP in the US Professional League that year, and her presence made the German players believe that if a German could win that award, then perhaps, just perhaps, the US were beatable on home soil.
2: We remain scoreless this 2003 Women's World Cup final between Sweden and Germany.
3: The final against Sweden was a repeat of the UEFA European Championship two years earlier.
2: Bloomberg times it, scores it! Bloomberg, Bloomberg has put Sweden ahead now a chance to create. Sees Weinart darting into the right side of the box. She ties it. Germany is equalized in the 46th minute.
3: After a cracking game, the teams were locked at one apiece. Eight minutes into extra time, with both teams furiously going for a golden goal, Germany were awarded a free Germany kick.
2: With a free kick, close to 30 yards out, Lingor.
3: Renate stood over the ball her Frankfurt teammate Nia Kunzer had come on as a substitute and was lurking in the penalty box. But did she know, as soon as it left her boot, that this one was perfect?
6: I thought, OK, this could be a good one, but Nia had to do also something. She was, at this time, our best header in, in the league. Luckily, uh, the, the goalkeeper, she could catch it, <laughs> but she didn't. <laughs>
2: Nia Kunzer, the winner, golden goal, and Germany is golden. Germany, the champion of the 2003 Women's World Cup.
3: Throughout the tournament, the players had been told that their march to the final had gripped the nation. Ten million watched the final as Germany became the first team to win both the men's and women's World Cup. But until they got home, the players did not have a
6: clue. Yes, in Frankfurt, we, we went to a building where 10,000 uh, fans were waiting for us. That was really new. And um, it was, yeah, the beginning of the new women's soccer in Germany.
3: By the time Renate retired in 2008, she had won a lot. Loads. I mean, listen to this. Seven league titles, seven cups, six indoor championships, three Champions Leagues, three Euros... And those two World Cups. So she's definitely the right person to be working as team manager of the under 16 national team.
5: We
6: want to be professional in every uh, for the women's teams and also for the men's teams. We changed in the last uh, years, it's two years ago now. Um, Every national team. It doesn't matter if boys or girls are in one department, which helps also to bring the women and the girls closer um, to what we already had the last years for the boys teams, for the men teams, um, to, to make it more equal.
3: We finish up talking about pathways and development and how they have a responsibility to ensure that all players can develop individually, just like Renate did. Held in China, the 2007 World Cup was the first with a prize fund for players. $5.8 million in total. The year before, the Men's World Cup had a prize fund of $300 million. Somewhere between the two World Cups, Sepp Blatter suggested that women footballers should wear tighter shorts and low-cut tops to get a more female aesthetic.
7: For me, the game at, at, at that time um, was a bit of a joke because I remember us playing teams and there was dog poo on the pitch. Um, We had to clear it off ourselves. The changing rooms didn't have showers. It was just, everything was wrong about it, you know.
3: It's a good quote to start on for dramatic effect, but it's more than that. It's because our next interviewee was obsessed with standards throughout her career.
7: Hi, my name is Kelly Smith. Uh, I used to play for Arsenal and also represented England 117 times.
3: And England have their three-goal advantage back. And it's the golden girl, Kelly Smith, who taps it home from close range. All is well again in the England world. Kelly also had to start playing with boys teams. She got kicked off two of them for being too good. It's worth watching some film of Kelly playing. It's all liquid. She floats across the turf. Everything is perfect. And it didn't happen by accident.
7: I had a garage, my dad's garage, and I'd constantly kick the ball against the wall and when it come back to me, work on my touch. My lace is the outside of my foot, both feet. I'd take myself over to the park and use a bigger wall and I'd draw circles with chalk or a square and I'd work on my distances of hitting the ball hitting the target and then I'd watch match of the day and tape it and then I'd rewind players did certain things step overs or croifs, and I'd practice that in my front room And when my mum banned the ball it would be like a ball of socks wrapped up or a balloon
3: Kelly started playing for Wembley ladies in 1994 and she was soon described by the press as the outstanding prospect in the women's game today but it didn't make life any easier she got asked to go to the 1995 World Cup with England and had to turn down that chance to sit her GCSEs.
7: It was part of my decision and um, the FA at the time I totally understood. I wasn't very academic um, growing up, so I really had to apply myself and work hard at it. And I knew there wasn't a career in football for me um, at that time. It was all amateur, you know, we were kind of paying to play the game.
3: A few months later, just after her 17th birthday, Kelly made her debut against Italy. She was named player of the match.
7: It was very, very intimidating being in that environment, but I just tried to let my football do the talking. I didn't want to pass the ball to anyone. I just wanted to to just dribble around and show what I was about. In
3: 1997, after a season at Arsenal in which they won the Women's Premier League, Kelly got a full scholarship to Seton Hall University in New Jersey.
7: I was doing the education so I could play football. So, you know, Monday to Sunday, it was a professional environment for me because... I was on a ball every day, whereas in England, the reason why I left was because I was only training Tuesday and Thursday evenings with Arsenal. And that wasn't good enough for me, because it wasn't enough time playing with the ball.
3: We've told you how brilliant Kelly was. And when she graduated in 1999, they retired her shirt in honour of all the records she broke. Then she was asked to come back to England, back to that joke structure and the dog shit she told us about at the beginning. But she didn't. She stayed to play professionally in the US. By the time she finally came back to England in 2004, and when qualification started for 2007, it had been a decade since she turned down the chance to go to the 1995 World Cup.
7: I was just starting to think, you know, I'm playing my whole career just playing qualifiers and not actually playing at a major tournament. And that was really frustrating for not only myself, all my teammates within that same age era too. Rachel Yankee, Pharrell Williams, Alex Scott, Faye White.
3: Hope Powell, was appointed England manager in 1998. Hope was equally obsessed with standards.
7: Hope was, you know, a strict manager. You didn't know what mood you get her in day to day. But she was also well-respected within the camp because she started the programme when we had nothing and she fought so hard, knocking on the doors of the FA, wanting and demanding more more things. Not necessarily money, but to have an office at the Wembley Stadium or to fight for us for central contracts to try and become more more professional, for us to be playing on better pitches rather than mud baths. So it's all about standards and and trying to push the game forward that way. And, um, you know, you see what the the Lionesses have now, and I think that's a a big part of what she fought so hard for all those years ago, is to put the right things in place.
3: Kelly was the star of the qualification campaign. After a hat-trick against Holland, the Dutch coach called her the best player in the world. England finished the campaign with a one-all draw away to France, and they were going to China.
7: You know, it meant so much to everybody and my dad was there. The one person that followed me my whole career was there and um, he'd make every home game and he'd try and make as many away games as he could, but he was always my number one advocate my whole career. That made me you know, even more emotional on the night. Walking out was, was really special because it seemed like it was a, a packed stadium and that they'd all been there, turned out, to watch us. It wasn't the fact that there was a men's game before and, you know, they'd stayed in to watch the women after. It, they were in the stadium to watch um, England v. Japan.
3: Kelly scored both goals in the 2-2 draw. The first is a beauty.
7: All right, so you're making me watch my first goal um, at the Women's World Cup in 2007. Here
5: come England in of an equaliser. Which I have
7: fond memories of. Smith. I just remember running at the edge of the box here, Karen Carney in the middle of the of the park, She plays the ball, a great ball into me, and just in the top of the box. I managed to kind of Cruyff turn it, got a lucky bounce. It just set up perfectly for me on my left foot.
3: She's through. It's Kelly Smith!
7: And just side-footed it in and then took the boot off and then um, started kissing it. The
3: famous gifted boot of Kelly Smith has done the
5: business.
7: I dreamt of that moment for a long time. It was quite an emotional goal for me because I didn't know if I'd play football again with the injuries.
5: That's the boot that did it. When you're in a hole, you need your big players to shine brightest of all. Kelly Smith is England's biggest star.
3: England drew 0-0 with Germany in the second game. A massive performance against the reigning champions. Kelly scored two more against Argentina in the final group game. Before England crashed out 3-0 to the USA in the semi-final. She loved being at the World Cup. Kelly Smith, that was the... uh, Joint top scorer at the tournament with Marta and Birgit Prince. She loved playing against the best. She just wishes it had been on a level playing field. Here's what she thought about Renate's Germany team.
7: They were immense. You know, they dominated women's world football for a number of years. European champions, uh, World Cup champions. You know, some of them were full-time professionals. Whereas back in England, we weren't professional at all
3: and Kate's USA side.
7: There was a jealousy in there because they were very much well supported by their federation. They were full-time, training every day. They were in camp, you know, two months before. They had a massive advantage against anybody that they played against.
3: There are plenty of ways to judge a player, but the most pure is by what their peers say about them. The people who've trained with them every day and coached them every day. Hope Powell said that Kelly was a once in a generation player, a Maradona or a Messi. After 23 years as a footballer, 23 years searching for more time on the ball, Kelly retired in January 2017 as England's record goalscorer. Her favourite thing about the modern game? Technique. There's so many technical
7: players now in the game that can really take someone on with a bit of quality, a bit of skill, a bit of vision. You know, I'd love to play in the game right now, but I had my time. My life right now is, I'm very happy. I'm married, got a 22-month-old baby, pregnant now with my second, so I wouldn't change that for the world now because my life is is, is happy and I'm in a good place.
5: Saki Komaka to make history.
3: History is made! The first Asian team to win the Women's World Cup! They've defied the odds. They've caused another sensational footballing upset in Germany. First the hosts, now the number one ranked team in the world, has fallen to the skills of the Japanese. We're going to meet one of those Japanese players now, but first, here she is talking about her international debut seven years earlier.
8: Then after the game, I cried a lot in front of the people I was so embarrassing, and I was not supposed to cry because I needed to be professional, but I was 16, so that's a harsh time.
3: This is Yuki.
8: I am Yuki Nagasato, and I'm playing for Chicago Let's Stars now. I started to play for national team when I was 16, and I played. Well, three times World Cup, 2007, 11, 15, and two times Olympic Games. And I have played uh, five different countries Germany, England, Japan, Australia, and the USA.
3: We're with Yuki at the Seat Geek Stadium, home of the Chicago Red Stars. We spend the first 10 minutes of the interview laughing. Yuki has never been happier, but it's taken a long time for her to get here.
8: I didn't want to play soccer but i had to because my brother and sister already praying and my father said i have to so then when i was a kid we had a four times a week training
3: yuki improved quickly and luckily for her she had a legend to aspire to japan's greatest ever player here's Amari Sawa. golden ball golden boot japan's golden player
8: Oh, uh, So when I was a kid, she was playing in U.S. I could have a dream because of her. In Japan, we couldn't become the professional soccer player because they are not a professional soccer league. So she's a role model for us and women's soccer player. Because in junior high school, we had to write down the we have... A, dream and what their job do we want to have. I want them to be professional soccer player.
3: Pressure is something that Yuki talks about a lot. As she began to make a name for herself in Japan, the clamour for her to be called up to the national team for the 2004 Olympics became unbearable.
8: Like every newspaper or television want me on there. I am like a young striker, and I hate it because I was not this level like who I supposed to be like superstar I'm not. Because they expected a lot to me, more than I expect.
3: A year later, Yuki was back with the national team and she was playing up front with her hero. In the 2007 World Cup, Japan were knocked out after losing 2-0 to Germany. Renate scored that day. Then in the 2008 Olympics, Japan were knocked out in the semis by the US. It was time for a change.
8: I felt like if I continued to pray in Japan, I never beat them because we always uh, pray against like such as physical monster, you know. But in Japanese league, there are no physical monster prayer. So that's why I need I decided to pray abroad.
3: In two thousand and ten, Yuki moved to Germany to play in the Bundesliga. In the two seasons before the 2011 World Cup, she scored 36 goals in 51 games, won the Champions League and back-to-back league titles. And then the national team joined her in Germany with a purpose.
8: We didn't expect uh, we win the World Cup before the tournament, but everyone believed. Not sure, but we just believed. And uh, that year before the World Cup, the big earthquake hit it in Japan, and we had a lot of motivation for Japanese people, which hit it, the tsunami area. Praying for other people or other reason, you can get more energy into the game, and you can make any miracle which you cannot explain by logically, you know.
3: Yuki scored Japan's first goal of the tournament against Beck Smith's New Zealand. After losing to Kelly in England, they changed to a more defensive mentality and qualified from the group in second place. That set up a quarter-final against Germany, the physical monsters going for a hat-trick of titles on home soil.
8: It was a special moment for me because I lived Germany and uh, my teammate was on the national team, Germany. But I always wanted to be them.
3: And in the final, it was time to take on the other monsters she told us about before. Japan beat the U.S. on penalties. Yuki hardly remembers any of it.
8: I don't remember in the final.
3: <laughs> Yuki Nagasato, saved
8: by Solo. I just missed my penalty kick,
3: I remember. What about the feeling when the whistle goes there and you're world champions, you must remember that.
8: Yeah, oh, like in the hotel, and we drink. Hangover. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Maybe. can Yeah. <laughs> we spent 45 minutes with Yuki, and it's wonderful to see how she swapped pressure and unhappiness for balance and joy.
8: I kind of got successful, like World Cup, Olympic, professional soccer player, the Bundesliga Champions League. Everything, what I expected, I got it. And after that, I lost the motivation, the purpose. That's a hard, really hard life, like two or three years. And I finally found the purpose to play soccer when after I came to here, US. I don't recommend just to achieve or to be be successful. At some point, you will lose the motivation.
3: Because you have to have
8: a life. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's like not just living for soccer, you know. It's just, soccer is just
1: part of life. Hi, my name is Rebecca Smith, or you can call me Bex. So I started playing when I was five and then captain New Zealand for a number of years through two World Cups and two Olympics.
3: Bex didn't play in the 2015 World Cup. She retired in 2013 with 74 caps, most of them as captain. Then she joined FIFA as football manager of competitions and events, project managing all FIFA Women's World Cups across all of the age groups. And that's why we're talking to her. We wanted to get a different point of view. Bex didn't aspire to be a footballer, but her performances at Duke University had been noticed in New Zealand. Playing for New Zealand, and then going to the 2007 World Cup as captain, gave Bex an identity she had been searching for.
1: That was nuts. Like, that was something I never, ever thought I would do. Oh my gosh, you know, despite my accent, I'm 100% Kiwi blood and... Um, just have a real affinity to New Zealand and and where we come from and our family down there and um... oh now I'm getting all emotional <laughs> now you made me cry it's like raise Anatomy here <laughs> yeah no I, I yeah sports definitely adds an element of identity but I think that was really cool as well because I'd never really thought of myself as you know Kiwi first so. Um, Yeah, it really added another element to who I was. uh, Being able to represent New Zealand, super proud of that.
3: In Bex's early years, she admits that New Zealand were a bit of a ramshackle setup. But by Germany 2011, the organization had received better funding. Here's what happened in what turned out to be Bex's last World Cup game.
1: Scoring against Mexico was probably one of the highlights of of my career because it was just, I had such a shit game against England, I really did. And I was just so fucking pissed at myself and, and, and disappointed. And I just said, you know what, I've got one more game. Nothing to lose, let's just do this. Scoring off a header, we were down 2-0, I think, scoring off a header and then thinking, fuck yeah, let's do this, you know? Grabbed the ball, went back out, and then we scored in the 97th minute or something. Thank you to the referee. We tied and we got our first point, like, ever. And we just, like, went ballistic. And then we did our haka, and I mean, I was really proud of that team.
3: We love spending time with Bex. And when we talk about playing football, the tone is always light. But her experiences at FIFA opened her eyes to a lot of shit that she remains angry about. You'd want Beck Smith in your corner.
1: Yeah, one of the things that I did at FIFA, which I'm, um, I think really was a game changer, was we changed the regulations in the in the women's tournaments. When I went to my first tournament, it was under 17 in Costa Rica, and I went to one of the first team arrival meetings, and I won't mention what team it was, but it was a it was. A delegation of all dudes, and it was 15-year-old girls sitting there kind of, you know, looking a bit out of place and all the way across the other side of the world, and um, I mean, no one on their medical team that was female, n- no coaches that were female, and it just felt really weird um, to me, and so one of the things, the fir- one of the first things I did was try to change the regulations to have minimum one female in the medical staff. I don't think that needs any explanation.
3: Bex faced opposition at FIFA but refused to back down.
1: It really shocked me when I went to FIFA to to sort of hear some of the comments and and see how the women's game was treated. Um, I think one of the things for me that that I saw through my career was that there's still lack of medical care in the women's game and so players don't get... Um, the proper treatment. They don't get the proper prehab and prevention training. They don't get proper recovery. They don't get even the food, you know, nutrition that I saw, which is just a lack of education. And there's so many issues too that are in the game that people don't talk about. And those are some of the things I saw through FIFA as well. Like sexual abuse is, is rife. So one of the other things that we did is I changed the, the stadium requirements and made it mandatory that we had a coach's room for all tournaments and um, that took a lot of convincing as well. But I said I, I, I genuinely don't care because if a, if a player is coming to our tournaments, we have to make sure that we're at least allowing a safe environment and that means that we're not going to give an excuse for any coach or anyone to be standing in a dressing room when girls are being you know getting changed.
3: As we were putting this episode together the president of the Afghanistan Football Federation was banned for life from all football related activity. He was banned because he abused his position and sexually abused various players. That is a direct quote from the ruling. The whole story that has been tirelessly reported upon is absolutely heart-shattering and constantly moving. Every week, new horrific revelations come to light, which stops us giving you the full picture here. We'd recommend following The Guardian journalist Suzanne Rack and searching our interviews with Khalida Popal, the former captain. Here's what Bex has to say.
1: The Afghanistan FA and, and what's going on there with the women and Khalida Popal, who was captain of the the team um at the time and it's still going on when i was at fifa that when i had heard about some of that stuff i'm like hey is there a link or is there somewhere where they can go what what is our setup that people can report these things and it's it was nowhere it was nowhere on our website, it was, you know, nowhere public that you could find it. If you Googled on it, you, you, you couldn't find it. So that was one of the things that I, like, made sure that every team was aware of and, and talked about sexual abuse and, and discrimination and harassment and all of those topics that people don't talk about. You know, if it happens, it's all good that we all say, oh, that shit shouldn't happen, but what are we actually doing to, to help people that are in those situations? And then once they do report it, what's the process? You know, what is the process? Do we know?
3: Throughout her career, Bex continued to work and study. It was a necessity fueled by a desire to be more than just a footballer. In December 2018, Bex joined Copper 90 as the global director of the women's game. And her mission, her mission is to increase visibility at all levels and in all locations.
1: I love what I do. I think i, I it feels like I found a home. When I was working at FIFA, it always felt like the culture and the the values never really matched, but it felt like I could at least try to make a difference. So um, I think that now where the actual sport is, it just needs more visibility so that people see that it's a great sport to watch. And then um, secondly, I think the stories in and around the, the, the women's game are just incredible. That's why I'm in football, because I love it. And I think it has there's so much power in football, too. I think you can change you can change society You can, and I've seen it I've seen it in Jordan with the Under-17 World Cup that we did there where Prince Ali had like all these incredible women running the tournament and we had you know hijabs in a in a national tournament for the very first time and there's just some really cool stories coming out of the middle of the Middle East about all these girls and, and women um, doing all these incredible things and, and those stories need to be told
3: If you've been watching the Women's World Cup you can see that things have progressed on the pitch and if you haven't then you're missing out. The prize money of $30 million is the highest yet, but that is still $8 million less than France received for winning the Men's World Cup last year. Off the pitch, things are improving. Barclays have committed to sponsoring the WSL. Brands are forming campaigns around women's teams, and the top players are using social media brilliantly to push for equality. Yet there is always a danger if we only look at the top tier of a sport that what goes on below is forgotten. For the women's game to thrive and for equality to have a real chance it needs everyone together. Everyone from the halls of power to the grassroots pitches to work together so football becomes one game. We are all probably part of the problem. Can we be part of the solution? A Spotify original in association with Mundial. The Magnificent Seven was executively produced and edited by Tayo Papula. Original music by Harry Harris. Additional production by Dave Johnson, Andy Hewitt, Tom Griffin and Tom Glasser. Research and transcription by Max Freeman-Mills and archive assistance by Andrew Tomchuk. Thanks to Justine Freud at Chicago Red Stars and Choco from al Japan. Thanks to Alicia Ferguson, who still holds the record for the fastest ever sending off at a Women's World Cup for help with her massive contacts book. And special thanks to Michelle, Anne, Kate, Renate, Kelly, Yuki and Bex for their time, honesty and inspiration.